Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Ben Alden, Thelmer Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. One thing that I've learned from my time in oil and gas, I've been working in this industry for like 10 years. And uh, I came in as like street punk rocker, anti oil and gas. And I was going to take this job to like, you know, from within and try to change stuff. But then once I started talking to these guys and like really educating myself, I realized something oil and gas industry is like, you know, like has a bunch of people, powerful people against it. And there's all this FUD out there. And then it's like, what does that remind you of? Like, you know, now that you're in Bitcoin and, you know, there's just this big overlap and I'm seeing it on both sides. So many people don't understand basic things like energy density. And, uh, you know, they're still out here trying to power things with like wind and crap. So, yeah, not to get off topic on that, but that's what I woke up to this morning. Thanks a lot, Mike. <laughs> You're welcome. You guys can all you guys can always count on me uh, starting off the morning. Um, as soon as you guys wake up bright and early, I'm already up at 4 a.m. ranting in the space. So you're welcome. I think a lot of people don't realize, at least it used to be the case, especially with the wind uh, farms, if you will. They're highly subsidized. Uh, you know, I work in IT and we had one company literally go bankrupt, you know, because they, some of their subsidies, uh, for whatever reason, they lost them. I'm still, uh, really frustrated that Twitter took away the 100 emoji from me. Um, yeah, what I'm is mad. that? <laughs> Did they really? Are you serious? Or are you joking? Yeah, dude, watch no, this they shit. Changed what, is the this? what is this purple emoji. heart crap? What is this? I don't Oh, like... wow. Is that for real? Yeah, dude. I don't have it either. I don't know why. Brady's got one. Swan Bitcoin's got one. Ant's got the freaking heart with me. I don't understand what we did to get this treatment, but it's bullshit. I got a purple heart, too. I also have a clapping emoji now. They took away. I don't even know what was there. I've already forgotten. Oh, that's the new 100, huh? I didn't even realize that. Clap. Let me give you guys a clap. Wait, why is Shane's orange? What? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, you can change the color of your heart, Mike, if you you, uh, tap and hold. Good God. Oh, yeah, let's go. Bitcoin what have done? If you tap and hold. Wait, wait, what? Oh, yeah. Okay, there we go. There we go. All right. All right. Still couldn't give me a puke emoji, though, huh? Come on. <laughs> I guess my Twitter hasn't updated. I don't have any of these cool new emojis. At least we can get a Bitcoin heart. That's really all that matters, right? I want my hundred back. May you need to devolve your version of Twitter then. Probably. I'm so jealous of all these hundreds hitting the stage right now. It, it just doesn't feel the same. Whenever, whenever you guys have a purple heart, I'll just do a whole bunch of one hundreds. 
and it'll get it's good teamwork here. That's evil, dude. That's, that's really mean. You don't know what you got until it's gone. Who wrote that song? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Mike, when you when you clap, I just imagine you going, "Yes, <laughs> yay, yas queen." I do want to make a side note. I did nest the Telegram, so anybody that wants to hang out during the show, like if you're in the audience, have questions, just want to chat, whatever, or any other time, join that Telegram. Come hang out. Yeah. It's the live side chat on uh, Telegram. Hook up. Then you can throw your comments in here. So if you're not on stage, you have questions or whatever live during the show, you can throw your questions in there or your comments or make try to make fun of people on stage if you like. Hey, Alex, whenever, whenever, uh, whenever Sam gets in here, if you need space to make room for him, go ahead and boot me because I really want his podcast that he did with Preston was fucking unreal. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm just it. mainly here to listen to him and TXMC rant. Thank you <laughs> for offering to be sacrificed in such a way, Mike. The, you know, here's the thing: like people who hang out in here have figured out by now. We we pretty much just boot people. A lot, actually, from the stage. It doesn't mean anything personal. Like, we just need to make room for sometimes. It's all good, right? Ooh, Dr. There's no Jeffrey. freaking fist pump either. Oh, my gosh, dude. I'm so frustrated. And I'm throwing you, co-host. Okay. Yeah, and I found yeah. that that thing. It's not It's not some law over there that, that got me railing on this oil and gas. It was, uh, uh, let's see. There's a CMP, French insurance company, and they've announced that they're going to stop financing new oil and gas projects, which is it's just silliness, chicanery. All right. Let's get down to business a little bit here. Welcome to the show. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Do this every day, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific. Roll for about two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin. We're moving to a new format. First 15 minutes of the show, you know, we do a little bit of just kind of talking, seeing what's going on. We're also going to be covering the news. This is going to be the place for you to come and get your Bitcoin news in the morning. We're going to break it into subjects, obviously, areas such as mining and energy, what's going on with inflation, economics, uh, Hong Kong news update. Obviously, that's a temporary category, but we'll see what happens with that. Uh, if there's anything COVID hysteria-wise that actually applies to Bitcoin, we might hit that. Geopolitical game theory news is going to be part of the subject matter, etc. If you guys can think of good topics that you think we should cover, uh, go ahead and post it in the Telegram group. That's how we're going to be doing uh, questions from now on by the way because it's gotten to the point where if we do questions and i ask you to dm me i just can't keep track of it all there's too many damn dms and it just gets stupid so that's how we're going to do it from now on the link to the telegram group is up in the nest right now so if you guys want to hop in go right ahead i'm going to adjust the stage a little bit um for speakers and then we'll dive in
I'm really jealous of the change in emojis because uh, I feel like I feel like I'm going to get left behind here. You guys are all going to move on to some new emoji paradigm, and I'm still going to be stuck in the old ways. I don't like any of the ones that are. I mean, peace sign is maybe the only one. They're awful. <laughs> Tomer throwing you an invite. Sorry, Phil. I love you, bro. All right, today's show is going to be pretty cool. Special guests today are TXMC and Sam Callahan. We'll be talking about chain analytics, price, a little bit about Free Canada. Yesterday, huge announcement from Swan. We'll do a little bit of a follow-up on that. Swan Cannon launched yesterday. This is a new thing. To me, it's going to be like the Wikipedia of the internet. The actual description is the Bitcoin Canon presents thematic collections of the best Bitcoin educational content curated by Bitcoiners. We hope the Canon will be a collaborative effort to make it easier to share Bitcoin education with the entire world. Brady was our guest yesterday to talk a little bit about that. Brady, you want to comment on it real quick? Yeah, thanks. That was a really fun conversation yesterday to really focus on the canon, but also more broadly the importance and deep need for Bitcoin education. And I think this shows uh, this show is a big part of that. Uh, it's been amazing to watch it grow so quickly. So I think it's going to be an, play an important role in Bitcoin education, but. Uh, yeah, the first day was really amazing. We had an incredible amount of traffic coming over to the Canon. Um, Matt O'Dell, our friend Matt O'Dell from TFTC, uh, shared his privacy-oriented, uh, privacy-focused uh, rabbit hole on Twitter yesterday. And that tweet had a whole lot of uh, visibility to it and sent a whole bunch of traffic. So it was really cool to see Matt like dropping his rabbit hole um, in a conversation on Twitter, which is exactly how we want to see it be used. So, uh, yeah, it was a great first day. Can you explain a little bit how the rabbit holes work? Like if there's someone who wants to go create a rabbit hole, what do they do? Yeah, absolutely. We right now are going to do like a kind of a one extra layer of curation on what we're putting up on the, uh, into the Canon right now. So there's a form that you can get to. Uh, if you go to the Bitcoin Canon, swan.com slash Canon, C-A-N-O-N, um, you can click the learn more about the Bitcoin Canon link right up at the top. And on that page, there's a link to a form to just say, hey, I have an idea. Here it is. And we'll get in touch with you and give you the, the process to submit your rabbit hole, which is still sort of under construction. And that's one of the reasons why we want to do this extra layer. Eventually, um, you know, in the coming iterations, we have a version two and version three planned. We have features for those versions coming. Um, and that will include being able to submit your rabbit hole, like on demand, like anytime you want, anybody in the world can create one and, and add it to the canon. But it will be using resources that we have included in our database. So that's kind of the, the part where we maintain some curation control. Otherwise, it just loses some value. Um, we, want, we want like part of the value to be like, hey, these are high quality, you know, Bitcoin only education resources. So um, we will have a database where you can choose resources um, from, you know, from that database to add to your rabbit hole. Um, 
but you'll also be able to add to the database. We just have to check it out and make sure it's legit and not some like Cardano bullshit. Fantastic. Thanks, Brady. So in El Salvador, new things that are going on down there, it looks like they're considering raising the amount that they're, or raising the amount that they're raising in Bitcoin bonds to 4 billion. Now we've currently got uh, Natalie Brunel's down there with Brecky and um, they're doing some cool stuff with Max and Stacy down there. So we'll have Nat on the show on Monday to give us a little bit of an update. Does anybody know, here know anything about the $4 billion consideration? Anyone following that? I only saw the announcement. I don't know the particulars of the increase in the, in the raise. Radio. Okay. Also, other things that are happening in El Salvador. Earlier this week, we had Max Kaiser on the show, uh, and he announced uh, the launching of El Zante Capital. El Zante Capital is a um, investment firm focused on companies paving the road to hyper Bitcoinization. So. I'm going to read a little bit from the article. Venture capital fund El Zante Capital launched today with a focus on advancing hyper-Bitcoinization around the world through strategic investments in startups building the future of the Bitcoin economy. And Max's quote directly was, El Zante is hyper-Bitcoinization. Hyper-Bitcoinization is economic freedom, and hyper-Bitcoinization is our main investment thesis. That's pretty cool. Looking forward to what they build from that. Comments, thoughts on El Zante? These new emoji changes are just killing me, Alex. I was, I kept, I keep trying to put like a hundred percent or give you the fist, but I, I can't do it. So, so my apologies. I was totally tracking with you though. I'm, uh, I'm soaked about that. I can't, I just can't give you a lavender heart. It, it just doesn't feel right. No. Tap and hold. Change the color of the heart. They, yeah, they tap, took tap away. Hold it. They took away all the masculine emojis. Notice that. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Totally I'm 100 percent serious right now. So a guy like Jeff is like hitting it. He's like, "Man, I'm gonna give you a fist bump." And there's no fist bump. There's like a fucking colored rainbow or some shit. Jeff is hitting wow. it. Or a purple. Yeah, it's confusing. I accidentally gave a laughing emoji a minute ago. I didn't even mean to. Still getting used to it all. I appreciate your purple hearts, though, Jeff. Yeah, really so just cool. so you know, if I'm giving you guys purple hearts, I'm I'm really like you know super masculine and, and lifting weights and eating <laughs> steak and stuff. Don't don't judge me. Sometimes I feel like we need a dumpster fire emoji. Oh my gosh, I want to agree, and I can't. Your orange heart can be like an agreement. No, that's not the same, man. I'm frustrated with Jeff. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you know what? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to have any effect whatsoever, but we should all tweet at Twitter spaces and tell them how much we hate the new emojis. Please bring back masculine emojis. That'll actually probably get zero traction. But the things I mean, that give happen. me one negative emoji. They're so afraid to give me one negative emoji. Like, I appreciate the direction of a positive conversation, like, obviously. But I mean, come on, we're we're people, you know. Let us have one negative emoji. What's the holdup? 
And I want one, just one masculine emoji. Just one, please. Yeah, where's the flex emoji? <laughs> All right, back to the news. Hong Kong news update. Earlier this week, Ottawa's police chief resigned uh, on Tuesday, apparently. Things are not going well, apparently, for Canada's PM. But interestingly, all things are good for Bitcoin. You know, there was a big discussion about this last night. Some people in the space are like, no, not all things are good for Bitcoin. I'm not going to name any names. And, and they're very vociferous about that. I don't know. It's a test for sure. We're going to see how it works out. Um, I think what's happening right now is Canada is showing the world exactly how central bank digital currencies will be used. And uh, people need to figure this out pretty damn quick. Alex, did you see where Doug Ford, I think he's the premier of um, Ontario, announced that they were going to remove any requirement for vaccine passports, you know, to come inside. But he made sure and said that it had nothing to do with the uh, truckers protest. It's just the right thing to do now. <laughs> so that's where you going to say something. Can't hear you. You got to put your going from the other side of the room, dude. You got to put your microphone in front of your face, brother. Did you guys hear me? Barely. Ah, dang it! I just thought it was very naive of Kelly to announce the bonds right after the Accountability Act. Oh, it's. I think it's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to raise you four billion dollars in Bitcoin bonds. What do you think of that? I see you, U.S. dumb. I'll raise you hyper-Bitcoinization. <laughs> exactly. Nice, nice. Sense, I feel like your phone is using a microphone that's like in the other room or something. It's weird. Yeah, if it's connected to like a JBL or Bluetooth speaker, that could be the problem or something like that. I don't know. Or you could be like the, the hardcore cafe Bitcoiners and get a new phone just for the space. <laughs> uh, is this better? Oh, yes. way better. I don't way know what better. you did. Awesome. Awesome. We're in business. Wicked. I'm really jealous of your hundreds, man. Yeah. Never update your phone again. Oh my gosh, the again. rooms are going to fill with hundreds now just to spite us. Oh, yeah. boy. See, I get to hang out with the cool kids with the cool emojis because I never update any of the apps on my phone when they tell me to because I just don't like being told what to do. And so I miss out on cool updates. Did you guys see this news out of Ukraine this morning around Bitcoin? Bitcoin Magazine just posted it. I put it in the nest. You're talking about them um, legalizing it or whatever, or refining yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that too. Pretty cool. What's what does it mean to legalize it? Like in the context of Ukraine, what does it mean if, that they're legalizing it? Well, there they, was had, they had mentioned to the benefit. Go, go ahead, Sats. Oh, my bad. Um, there was mention to the benefit of it being censorship resistant as well. And I thought that was very pretty awesome. Goes against the narrative of typical uh, you know, Russian ideology. Uh, I thought that was awesome. 
There was also yeah, the the Bitcoin that was flowing in to support the Ukrainian was it Ukrainian rebels like the the loyalists I can't remember but there there was there was word of Bitcoin being used to help support the resistance against Russia so that's probably part of the motivation. Yeah, I think uh, Bitcoin was flooding into Ukraine even prior to um, the Canada and the trucker convoy. Yeah, the spin up of. Uh geopolitical items is really accelerating. I mean, I think everybody here can sense it. Like the type of the number of items that are coming to the forefront is really interesting. And the tempo is really interesting. Uh, there was a 3.45 billion euro Russian bank that came out with a statement that said Bitcoin cannot be controlled and should not be banned. So this is the second thing coming out of Russia just this week in that vein and then you've got colorado governor is saying that they're going to accept bitcoin for state taxes this summer you've got multiple spot etfs launching globally fidelity has launched a spot bitcoin etf over in europe canadian spot bitcoin etf as many people have known have have, has already been up for a little bit singapore has joined the list as it now offers investors exposure to a spot Bitcoin ETF. Tennessee's putting their hat, their uh, you know, hat in in the race, if you will, too, right to become the uh, capital of the U.S. if you will for Bitcoin. And I was going to add on that accepting Bitcoin uh, to pay for taxes. That in itself kind of is a backdoor way of making it legal tender. Yeah, in a way, so to speak, I agree with that. You know, sometimes people will uh, say that it's, you know, it's just small things. It's not going to make a difference. Well, it's all the small things that are adding up. It's really what it comes down to. I think that's the thing to keep our eye on is that if every state or maybe not every, but if you get 15 or 20 or 30 of the states all making it legal tender, and then pushing the federal government to remove taxes on it as property. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, the first step that they're taking for a lot of these is that they're redefining it as legal tender. Let's talk a little bit about these spot ETFs. I've got a a question that came in through DMs. This came from Justin. He goes, hey, Alex, firstly, I love listening to Cafe Bitcoin. I listen daily if I can. I was wondering if you'd ask, if I could ask a question Hope you respond. Why is everyone looking forward to a Bitcoin spot ETF? I feel like that opens things up to manipulation similar to gold. Anybody have any thoughts on that? I have some thoughts on that. I'll I'll, I'll wrap that um, if anybody else wants to comment. Uh, I'll just jump in here real quick. So, so people love convenience above all else, especially Americans, right? And so what Americans really want is a super duper duper easy way to invest, quote, quote, unquote, invest in Bitcoin without going through all the hassle of, you know, figuring out what what keys means and figuring out, uh, you know, storage and blah, 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 blah. Even though, you know, when you're on the inside, you understand that it actually is pretty easy and it's worth the effort uh, to own Bitcoin on your own, to own, to hold your own keys. So, but all that aside, people love convenience. There's a wall of boomer money, trillions of dollars that's just sitting on the sidelines waiting to get in something Bitcoin related. 
And if there's a U.S.-based Bitcoin ETF, one that gives them confidence that the SEC has approved it so they feel like, okay, this is legit. This isn't just criminal money um, that, that ruins the environment. Um, and that's a big Ponzi scheme, you know, the, the typical headlines. Uh, I just had another dude tweet at me about that today. He's got like 65,000 followers and he, he's calling Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme and, and hacking on a jack um, for, for supporting it. Anyways, that's a, that's a side note. So, so yeah, it's a huge deal. It, uh, if you can get the boomers into it uh, and you have a one easy click method for them to just buy it, put it in their 401ks, put it in their IRAs. I'm telling you like tens of billions, hundreds of billions uh, of dollars are going to come into it over time and and sooner than later. So it is a big deal. I will tell you though, that I think that um, it's not going to happen, unfortunately, still for a while because Gary Gensler continues to hold the spot Bitcoin ETF hostage until he can get his demands met for crypto exchanges and other uh, crypto related things. Um, even though he's pro Bitcoin, he continues to hold it hostage. And I think he's going to continue doing that until all of his demands are met, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, it is a big deal that there, the, the a spot ETF would be a big deal. I agree with you, Jeff, uh, you know, it, it's, and it's a bigger deal than any kind of the futures ETFs are the ones where you see a lot of the manipulation, you know, the derivatives based ETFs, but in the spot ETF, the institutions, they have to physically hold the Bitcoin, you know, so there is a. There's a correlation there to the supply itself. And like you said, there's all this boomer money that's sitting around at accounts at Fidelity and Charles Schwab and all these huge money money managers. And they're just waiting for some official vehicle, Bitcoin-related, that they can park their money in. Uh, So I I think it would be a huge boon to the market. Absolutely. I don't think it would be a vehicle for manipulation any more than the futures uh, are at this point. To me, it seems there's some conflicting language coming from the SEC on this. You have Hester Pierce arguing that the a spot ETF is not being approved, um, essentially for to protect investors, um, which doesn't really make sense given that there's clearly much more risk investing in a futures ETF than a spot ETF. Um, but at the same time, as as um, Dr. Bear correctly said, um, uh, Gary Gensler. Um, has talked about that this is basically being parked until they deal with some other things first. And I think you're going to see stablecoin regulation, maybe some crackdown on some shitcoins as well, before you get this Bitcoin ETF in, approved in the United States. Bill, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Just just real quick, I, I think it's perfect timing. Um I, what, what everybody said with the ETF, I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly, um, but just wanted to give a couple of bookend updates on the boomer side of things. We've got uh, we've got Mr. Buffett, you know, who uh, has a problem with rat poison, taking a little sip of rat poison. They just put a billion dollars into a Brazilian Bitcoin friendly bank. I think that's pretty big news. Um, you know, we're seeing the big boys are, are, are getting ready, right? They're they're front running this ETF. I, I have a feeling there's probably connection why it slows down a little bit, but um, it, it's moving along. And I think Buffett going in helps helps quite a bit. Um, I know I know some boomers myself that they they love Warren Buffett. They think he walks on water. So just even him taking a little taste um, is a big deal. And then on the other side of the bookends, you know, um, on my way, going to have to hop out, but heading over to uh, um, power up a, a Bitcoin miner in a high school academic building. So that's a pretty big deal. We're looking forward to that. So it's all happening on both sides. And here we go. That's pretty badass, Bill. We were discussing this 
briefly last night about the SEC's position. And um, we, I'm curious uh, if the issue is really getting their hands around, for Gensler, right, is, is the issue getting hands around the unregistered security issue um, versus stable points. I think at the extra sovereign level, sort of like the IMF, the BIS, et cetera, I think they're probably way more concerned about stable coins, just my opinion, based upon flows, et cetera. Um, but I wonder if, if the issue is, is that Gensler doesn't want it, want it blowing up before they can get their hands around the unregistered securities issue. So BlockFi was just fined $100 million earlier this week. And um, thinking through the scenario, I'm wondering, does that mean that all of these unregistered securities, a.k.a. coins, every coin, for those of you listening who don't know what the hell we're talking about, the SEC basically last year laid the groundwork to say that anything except for Bitcoin essentially is what they considered an, an unregistered security. And they've been doing business as unregistered securities. According to the SEC, that's against the law. So, Right, because they all passed the Howey test, which is essentially that the value of this investment is based on some team putting in some sort of performance, and you're expecting returns to be based on that. Well, not only that, it mirrors the capital structure of a, of a, of a security. Right, it's got a small group of people who control it, much like a board of directors. There's a pre-mine, which is much like a pre-issuance of shares prior to it going public, so to speak. And then they sell those shares into the general market, coins, whatever the hell you know, to raise capital theoretically to build out the infrastructure of of the idea. Right, that's exactly, exactly the way um, a company operates when it's issuing stock to raise capital. You could argue so, that VCs have been doing this sort of game for 20 years, though they've been doing, you know, these multi-billion dollar IPOs of unicorns that aren't turning a profit. Um, they've been doing, you know, pump and dump shitcoinery since before there were shitcoins. Yeah, certainly. But the I guess, you know, to keep it in, in on the on the track of, you know, the Bitcoin ETF and what does this all mean? Like, what is the go here? Does that mean that that Fines get issued to every uh, altcoin, and well, how big are the fines? Can those altcoins actually survive those fines? Like you take any one of the seventeen thousand altcoins that have been issued, uh, of the ones that still exist, hit them with a hundred million dollar fine. You know the quote board of directors. Does that thing still exist? And then on top of that, if they say to them, you must now become a registered security, or you must return investor money. Right. What happens then? Wicked. Go ahead. And then on top of that, uh, they might restrict exchanges to allow you to buy and sell that coin on the exchange. So then you're like doubly fucked. So for- I just wanted to add how kind of incredible it was for Bitcoin's release and um, for it to be fair, open and honest and why it's separate. And then how much understanding of securities law did satoshi have prior so for blockfi it's interesting because you know they they had products where you could store some bitcoin on their on their exchange and they would pay you interest 
uh, on the on the amount of Bitcoin that you're holding on there. And then once they uh, negotiated this fine with the SEC, now anyone who has Bitcoin in that account uh, can still earn interest on their Bitcoin. But if you take your Bitcoin out of that account, you can't put it back in. So it's a one it's a one way door now. And they have to come up with a different product or a different mechanism to basically pay int- have interest bearing accounts. So it it wasn't even that they had a shit coin. They were just trying to pay interest on like Bitcoin, for instance. Uh, they, they pay interest on other coins. But like, you know, we, we just talk about Bitcoin here. So like, you know, you're just holding Bitcoin on the exchange to gain interest. And SEC said, no, that's that's an unregistered security. So I. I'm really I'm confused a little bit by the ruling and, and and everything, but they have promised their customers that hey, if you keep if you don't do anything, then you're grandfathered in. You'll keep earning interest in Bitcoin. But uh, we will be releasing a well. Actually, they have to register a new product. They have to get it approved by the SEC before they allow people to use this new interest bearing product. So they don't even have it out yet, but they're, they're building it and they're going to file, uh, I think an S one, uh, with, with the sec to, to get that approved. Right. So that's actually a separate issue, but to me, it's still a signaling mechanism. To me, that is one of the first of possibly many fines that are going to come. And granted that's based around lending, but they're still calling it a security. Right. So to me, that's like the SEC saying, yo, you guys better figure out what you're going to do because this is coming. Right. So back to the thought of if they tell an altcoin board of directors, you guys need to register. And if you don't, you need to return investor money. How many of those things are going to survive that event? Like it could be a bloodbath. May not be. Look, I may be going completely down a rabbit hole that never happens, but then you get to the exchanges, like somebody just said a couple minutes ago, and now you have these exchanges that are dealing in unregistered securities, which is also against the law. What What's that going to look like? So, <clears throat> you know, once all that gets cleared up, and I don't know what cleared up means to the SEC's satisfaction, if that's when they'll allow a Bitcoin ETF you know, to answer the guy's question, so so I'm just going through the scenario. I'm not necessarily looking for answers right now. These are just thoughts that I've had, and it's obviously pretty messy to me um, and possibly does not really bode well for all these unregistered securities. I'm just going to start calling them unregistered securities. For, for those of you who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, all shit coins, unregistered securities. Fuck shit coins. <clears throat> Don't do at it. Best, at best, that's what they are. <laughs> uh, hey, Alex, am I am I coming through okay? You're loud and clear, brother. Awesome. Um, think about it like logistically. The SEC doesn't have the manpower or the the resources to do all that, especially since we saw what a, a thousand new coins last month. Um, it's they're going to make the exchanges do it, and then they're going to get a checklist. If they don't meet the requirements or the you know the, the levels, then they're 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 a security or you know. And or I guess it'd be more like it's just a pure Howie test. Right. And they're going to let that be the filter system. And if you're not going to if you can't pass that test and be accepted onto the exchange as a security, you, you know, and 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 pass all the the regulations that they the SEC would like to see uh, enacted, you're you're just not going to be on the exchange. Pure and simple. 
and you yeah. lose out on everything and your liquidity gets sucked out because people are going to panic and leave. So I, I, yeah. Well, it's just like a stock that becomes delisted, right? What, what happens to a stock that becomes delisted? It basically goes to zero for most of them because there's no liquidity. Take the ride. Explain what the Howie test is for people who don't who've never heard that term. The Howie test is 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 a, it's actually quite simple, and you don't want to pass it. Like when you pass it, you you technically become a security. Uh, you're you're accepted as a security. You're understood as one. Um, and Bitcoin does not pass the Howie test because there's no pre mine. There's no. Uh, I'm not I'm not completely up on it. Jeff, Doctor Jeff will, will clearly explain this better than me at the moment i've been up for 18 hours right now so i'm gonna fail that that test cops are coming to get you Walton. well well the, the criteria for the howie test uh there's four criteria that determine uh it's based on an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. Thank you, sir. Pretty clear. Uh, I want to go and answer this guy's question about, does this open things up to to manipulation? If there is a a spot Bitcoin ETF, we'll get to that in a second. Shane, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to add before we move on. I think the other thing, which, and I'm not saying that it alone um, will sustain it, but you know there will have to be some. Um, they'll have to address these decentralized exchanges as well. You know, like Uniswap, Pancake Swap, all that, because they do provide some liquidity. I'm not at all comparing them to the the volumes that happen on the exchanges, but that'll be another aspect of this for these altcoins that'll have to be dealt with. Don't don't those decentralized exchanges in quotation marks have headquarters? Sure. But I mean, I'm just saying, you know, we were talking about the fact that and I agree that maybe a lot of this uh, will be managed through the exchanges deciding to list them or not list them. So but yeah, I'm just saying Mm -hmm. it's another aspect of it. They, in essence, act as an exchange so we can loop it, uh, you know, group it all together. Sats, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how many will actually be integrated into the system, uh, such as using different DeFi or whatever with NYDIG. They give that to legacy clients. They can offer that. I just wonder um, how much of it will actually be just put into the legacy system. Not sure I understand your question. What do you mean? How much of what will be put into the legacy system? Well, as far as um, Bitcoin, the technology, the APIs, um, the integration of the technology, such as what they're doing at the SEC, as well as moving that onto a blockchain type. I'm not a shit corner. I'm just seeing uh, trends and the technology and the move and the adoption. I'm not sure I agree with that description. I don't think it's trends. It's just a lot of money. That doesn't mean it's actually getting any traction. Those are two different things. Like I agree. The whole, 
the whole altcoin shitcoinery casino is being fueled by VC money. Why? Because they can get in, they can get out, they can be a huge return. They don't have a lot of risk. They don't really give a crap whether what they're promoting actually works or not. That's not the game. The game is getting out. Corporations and scammers, they're not money. And they've proven that you can make a lot of money in a short amount of time without even having a real viable product. Yeah, that's the point. That's 100% what I'm saying. And that, by the way, that model is not new. Not new. The whole pump and dump thing, you know, from 20-ish years ago. Same deal, man. Same deal. Pig with lipstick. Happening at light speed. How many of you guys listened to the um, Jack Dorsey (laughs) spaces yesterday with Sequoia? I mean, you know, when they opened it up for comments, everybody was like, well, let's not talk about Bitcoin. Let's talk about this, you know, altcoin or that altcoin. It was, it was actually quite yeah, comical. No, no, I zero that saved my that. life. Zero <laughs> interest in that. Look, Sequoia have been like A16Z for the last 20 years. Why do you expect anything different? Yeah, zero interest. Zero interest. And then they all fucking had blue check marks too. I have no idea how they all have these blue check marks, these shit coiners. You got issues against blue check marks, Wicked? Sounds like a personal thing. When it's a scammer, the wife of Twitter CEO is a partner at A16Z. What do you expect? Yeah, I mean, like you know, I, I thought blue check marks were to prevent scammers. Dude, they've taken away all of our masculine emojis. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, all right, back to this question. Feel like a that a, a spot Bitcoin ETF would open it up. To manipulation. And I'm going to comment quickly on the manipulation part in that I worked in that industry for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, it's not manipulated. And the fact of the matter is there are dozens, dozens of multi-hundred million dollar, multi-billion dollar fines levied against banks for (laughs) manipulating those markets. Um. It's pretty hard, I think. I mean, you might be able to push it around a little bit with futures temporarily, but at the end of the day, all that stuff does net out, right? So a lot of the counter argument against that is futures, you can't really use futures to do it because eventually it nets. Where you really could do it, though, is in the OTC markets. If you have connections with the big institutional players and you're playing games. And interestingly enough, those are the areas that a lot of those banks got fined in. So whether a, a, a Bitcoin spot ETF would, would increase the, the surface attack area for manipulation, I personally don't think so, maybe on a very temporary basis. But here's the thing to remember, and this is what's different about Bitcoin from gold. Bitcoin's got a ultimate inflation rate of zero. There's a specific number of Bitcoin, 21 million, that will ever be created. Most of those are already mined, and there will not ever be any more. And here's a key important difference between gold and Bitcoin. Gold sitting in a vault, uh, the way you audit it is you literally walk around, you look at the gold bars, you put it down on a little sheet of paper, and most of that information is held very closely to the chest of those institutions that are holding that gold. You can't get access to that for the most part. 
GLD came out and they went from nothing to like 60 billion in a very short period of time. Their bar list was available, but here's the problem. You can't verify that. You have to trust the auditors. And literally in the GLD prospectus, it says that they can hire uh, sub-vaulting companies. I don't know if I'm using the right word. I'm just paraphrasing it. That they really have zero visibility into what they're doing. They're just accepting their audits at face value and calling it good. Where with Bitcoin, if there's a Bitcoin ETF, I would hope that the Bitcoin is um, what they have in inventory is shown publicly in a way where anybody can verify that on the blockchain. So if that's the case, um, I don't see how they're going to cause any kind of shenanigans with that. And what Dr. Jeff was saying is correct. When they open a Bitcoin ETF, there are tens of trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines in retirement accounts and institutional money. You know, institutions can't buy commodities directly for a lot of these. They have to buy a securitized product. What does that mean? It means tens of trillions and in, in, you know, sitting there that might be invested but otherwise can't be unless there's a securitized vehicle. That's what a spot Bitcoin ETF does. Go ahead, Wicked. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just want to second this sentiment. I think, you know, there could be some, you know, short-term uh, shenanigans happening where people are trying to, you know, manipulate price with these other uh, instruments, <clears throat> but you can only do that for so long. I mean, for all the reasons you were saying, Alex, with the limited supply, the increasing demand, the increasing hodl rate, uh, there's just not enough Bitcoin to go around uh, to to manipulate the price down um, long term. You know, eventually it will it will give. And to be honest, you know, as as a stacker myself, right. I wouldn't mind if they manipulated the price down for a little bit longer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not worried about that at all. As a matter of fact, I openly welcome it. My DCA strategy would not be upset about that. Yeah, we were, we just had a uh, uh, spaces earlier with Archie and three major uh, investor guys, and they their low ball was four trillion. So. And that was at five percent from you know investment funds and things like that. So it seemed like a good number. By the way, a quick Google search: J.P. Morgan's been fined thirty-six billion dollars since two thousand. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit of manipulation there, um, and that, that took two seconds. So and and then like right next to it there was a little advert saying JP Morgan slams bitcoin blah 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 whatever bullshit they want to spray but i i don't, I don't care anymore they can't fuck with it the, the beach ball is getting bigger all right let's let's do some announcements real quick and then we're going to dive into chain analytics price discussion etc we've got TXMC here and appreciate you coming in man let's hit some of this stuff you are listening to cafe bitcoin we do this Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, roll for about two hours. It is the place to come and get your Bitcoin news for the day, for the morning. It's turning into the preferred hangout for a lot of the top minds in Bitcoin. People drop in on a regular basis and talk to us about what's going on. This is also a podcast. It's up on Spotify. 
It's up on Apple. Throw a follow to Swan Bitcoin if you want to be notified for when that drops. Bitcoin 2022 is coming up. New speakers are being announced all the time. It's been announced that Breedlove's going to be speaking, although I think everybody already knew that. But here's a big one. Jordan Peterson is going to be speaking at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami, April. If you haven't got your tickets yet, now's the time. Promo code SWAN for 10% off. Ticket prices go up tomorrow. If you want a job in Bitcoin, go to Bitcoinerjobs.com. If you're a company looking to hire Bitcoiners, you can post at Bitcoinerjobs.com. We'll give Walton a chance to comment, and then TXMC, you got the floor. Go ahead, Walton. Yeah, one thing that I think is happening with regards to manipulation is that exchanges are manipulating the prices downwards to flush out um, paper hands, um, retail, um, for which they don't actually have their Bitcoin. I think exchanges are double selling. Um, they are doing fractional reserve, binanking. Um, and you should withdraw all of your coins from exchanges. It's up to um, us good actors in the market to keep the other actors honest. Thank you. Your coins on the exchange are no safer than your money in the bank, as our friends to the north have been recently discovered. Nick Batia got some rehypothecation going on. Speaking of Nick Bhatia, if you have not read Layered Money, that's a fantastic book. Absolutely. It's actually on my desk right now. We've got Nick Bhatia coming up uh, next month on this show. Uh, TXMC, do you want to give us a rundown on what you're seeing in the markets? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me on your space today, everyone. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think you guys put on a really quality production here, and it's something that the Bitcoin community really values. So thank you. Um, you know, th this market's been pretty hard to get a clear read on in like the near term, you know, and I, I'm not a macro economist. It feels like it feels like the last six months, my feed has turned into everyone thinking they're a macro economist, maybe even myself. And, you know, there's there's like there's two different dynamics going on right here that, that are that are working against each other, but also making it you know, difficult and challenging to assess what I think Bitcoin is doing on its own, like market-wise. And it's that Bitcoin itself went through, you know, through a major correction in April, May of last year. We, we've experienced another drawdown of a similar percentage, but of a very different character in the last couple of months, you know, since, since November, December. And we had that major correction, you know, maybe nine months ago now, eight months ago, and that, from the data that I look at, which is predominantly on-chain data, uh, that was a true correction. That was the dumping of supply by various cohorts that hold supply, and it took us months to recover from. Right? It, it, we've all we all saw how that played out. But what's been interesting since the recovery last summer, summer for those of the northern hemisphere, like May through July, after we had that that period of time of absorbing the supply that got dumped on the market in April and May, we started to see price drifting up and hodling behavior really dominating. And, you know, the, th the thing that I look for when prices create new highs, when we break into price discovery, which is when, for those listening, it's when you 
break over the previous price and you're in unknown price territory and price is being discovered by the market. The, whenever we get into those areas, usually uh, what I look at for on chain based on historical data is spending behavior. Are the people who have the Bitcoin spending it onto the market to realize gains, to exit? And if they're doing that, are they starting to overpower the demand that's pushing the price up? Right? Those are the two forces that, that create the market. And we saw in, in April and May, tons of selling, price rolls over, market collapses. But the, the October, November period of time was very different. The amount of spending that I was able to observe on chain from the various cohorts that hold Bitcoin off of exchanges, which is the vast majority of it, the spending out of those groups was really limited. Uh, it was a it was a fractional percentage of what they normally distribute out of their holdings when we get into new prices, and those are the forces that help to stall out a rally. And so I saw limited spending. I see all this hodling going on. We see long term holders who have a very high percentage of supply historically. They're basically at their highest level. They distributed a very small amount. Another group that I call that we call illiquid supply, which are really the hodlers themselves. Those are the people who have a low amount of spending history. Majority of their activity into their wallets are inflows. That group also did not spend much at all in October and November. I actually posted a tweet right at the beginning of the space about how the illiquid supply as a ratio compared to the rest of Bitcoin recently broke above the level it was at in April when the market rolled over. And that group of hodlers, that illiquid supply group that I'm talking about, they are one of the major reasons why the market was not able to continue in April of last year. If, I, if, if you look at the chart I tweeted, which I'll put it in the nest after I'm done ranting here, uh, and I will come up for air in a moment to answer questions. The, if you look at the supply in April, May, Illiquid types, which are the majority of supply, they, they are the hodlers, they distributed in April with the rest of the market, but they didn't in October and November. And we started to see a drawdown anyway. And it's really driven by macro, which I, I would not consider myself an expert on. I try to focus on the things that I really know, which is Bitcoin. But the drawdown we saw over the last few months was over 50%, just like in April, May. But it was a completely different profile. We didn't have the dumping of supply by the various hodler cohorts that contain the majority of Bitcoin. We didn't see deposits onto exchanges. If you look at the exchange pattern of flows in and out, first of all, it's been in a structural downtrend since March of 2020. March 13th of 2020, which was the day of the COVID crash, is the literal high watermark for Bitcoin's all-time history on exchange balances. People deposited onto the exchange, which is the only way for them to get out of their positions, right? That happened on March, on March 13th, 2020. There's the high watermark. And since then, we've seen a structural, you know, now year and a half, two year decline in exchange balances, except for May of last year, except for April, May in the crash where I talked about illiquid supply was selling, long-term holders were selling, every cohort imaginable dumped their coins. And what, we, what we've been seeing now is all of those signals reversing. Exchange flows are continuing to go out as prices going down. Exchange balances are now at Q4 2018 levels, 
So like way back in history is the last time exchanges as a group had this small amount of Bitcoin. They have like 12 or 13% of the circulating supply, not very much. And so what I'm looking at to bring all this together, what I'm looking at right now is a market that went through a major capitulative phase about eight or nine months ago. And it took us several months to recover from it. And just as Bitcoin was getting to the point where retail tends to come back in, which is when new prices are made, when we started to get to a place where you would think the market could maybe pick up some steam, instead it just completely ran out. And it rolled over, the macro situation took over, and the correlation to the S&P reached a very high level. And it's been kind of stayed that way. Bitcoin's basically responding to the S&P with a high beta for the last three, four months especially. And so I think what's really going on, I think what we're going to see, it's clear the market is waiting for the Fed, you know, mid-March, I think March 15th or so is the next meeting. A few days before that is the next CPI print. And if you look at the futures term structure for Bitcoin, it's basically flat from now until March 25th, which means that even the derivative speculators are not anticipating much bullish action between now and then. And then out to the end of the year, it's a very small annualized premium. So it just seems the market in general is absorbing what's going on with the Fed. It's very hesitant. And Bitcoin, even though we have all this record hodling going on, it's really being held back by what's going on on the bigger stage. And so, I, But I think that when that starts to clear up, which could be maybe early April, after we see what the Fed's going to do. If they stick with their plan, they've gone through so much effort to be transparent and try to telegraph their moves in the last couple of years. If they follow through with what the market expects, I think we'll see a bit more clarity and perhaps Bitcoin can you know, maybe start to realize some of the supply restriction. But, I, but the, the, long, the, the, the shortest way for me to summarize what's going on, Bitcoin had its crash. We had another correction really led by macro, but during that period, we have seen the kind of hodling that we need to see for Bitcoin's long-term health to be very positive. So that, that, I, I threw out a ton of information there. I, I, I get really long-winded with this stuff because there's so much to cover, but uh, that's basically what I'm looking at. I think that Bitcoin itself is positioned very well. I think that maybe it's even at the beginning of a new market cycle even though we didn't have the kind of deep correction people were looking for, we had the behaviors that we need to see for a market to reset. And I think that macro is really just keeping it from reaching its potential right now because there's so many people that still perceive it as risk on, even though we know by design it's the opposite. All right. Uh, Dr. Jeff, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Oh, man, that's pure gold, TXMC. Good stuff, brother. Um, so I have lots of things to add. I mean, I mean, what you're saying, I think, is is really important in, in multiple ways. So, so I'll try to remember the different um, thoughts I had while you were talking. First of all, I think the, the, the reason it's important to look at on-chain, even though a lot of traders don't respect it, I think they should. It's, it's important to remember that the price of Bitcoin moves on the margin. So when we say it moves on the margin, it, the, it's determined by the liquid supply of Bitcoin. What's cool about on-chain is you can see whether the, the liquid supply of Bitcoin is increasing or decreasing, and, and, as, and concurrently is the uh, illiquid supply increasing or decreasing. The long-term price of Bitcoin 
is really driven by the illiquid supply. So, so the OGs who are buying and holding and putting their Bitcoin into cold storage, as long as that number is increasing, you can be, I think, fairly confident that the price of Bitcoin over the long run is going to go up and to the right. It usually moves within a big channel. Um, and so in the short term, as TXMC said, it absolutely moves because of what traders do and because of macro forces. And so right now what we're seeing, even though we have a bullish setup from kind of a long-term hodler perspective, um, we have bearish macro views. So to Walton's point, touche, I am Dr. Bear. I still remain bearish uh, on the macro view. Why does that matter? When when the bearish setup remains, excuse me, when the macro setup remains bearish, risk on assets don't do well. So that's still the setup we're in. I, I still contend, by the way, um, we haven't even hit the rough patch yet. I think the rough patch to TXMC's point actually is going to come mid-March. We're going to get CPI print numbers. We're going to get Fed action, uh, probably raising rates at that point. Um, the, um, the, the accommodative policies that the Fed has been doing will be officially tapered out and down to zero. So there are a lot of, I think, negative catalysts coming up. Now, why does this matter? Because Bitcoin, as TXMC again eloquently said, is still considered by the majority of market participants to be a risk on asset. Those of us who are here up on stage and lots of people in the audience actually understand Bitcoin to be the ultimate risk off asset. What we need is for the majority of market participants to truly believe that so that when they panic, when the macro situation is really dire, when another black swan event comes or even a gray swan event comes, like maybe Russia invading the Ukraine, maybe another COVID variant, who knows, whatever it is, Whenever an event like that comes, what we need to do is have people not panic and sell their Bitcoin. They actually need to flee into Bitcoin. Right now, people flee into the U.S. dollar when they're scared, and that's what makes it kind of the, the world's safe haven risk-off asset. Bitcoin is much better than the U.S. dollar in basically every way, right? We all know that. So at some point, the world will see it as the world's ultimate risk-off asset. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. It's very exciting. Um, so, so I don't know how it's going to trade. The optimist in me in the, in the hardcore Bitcoiner really wants to believe that it turns into a risk-off asset sooner than later. I don't know. It remains to be seen. But I would prepare yourself for other risk-on risk assets like U.S. equities, especially tech stocks, U.S. small cap stocks. I could go on and on about what tends to not do well in these current situations. I think that they're going to suffer for the next couple of months. We're seeing a series of lower highs in basically all of U.S. equities. You can go back and look at any chart basically starting in November. They peaked November or December, and they've just been going down with a series of lower highs. That's very negative from a technical standpoint. That's very bearish. I think there's going to be more of that to come. I hope that Bitcoin doesn't do that as well, but um, it, it may. We'll see what it does. If it goes down, remember, that's an awesome buying opportunity. It's a sat stacker paradise. I would immediately get on to Swan Bitcoin and hit smash buy, honestly. And I'm not even kidding because you're going to be able to buy more sats for your dollar. So if it goes down, it's a, it's a win situation. If the price goes up uh, and turns into a risk off asset and surprises, uh, you know, uh, fund managers everywhere, that's a that's a win. So it's a win win situation. So, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah, you know, like that, that was so great, Jeff, Dr. Jeff. And I, I think you're you're absolutely spot on about the potential that we see more downside before we see upside, before we see the thing that people really want to see. Uh, it, it, it's certainly possible. And I think what what gives me some conviction specifically for Bitcoin is that, you know, 
we've we've given the people who are in this just for gains, the people who are just trying to speculate and make money because they bought Bitcoin a week ago and they want it to be higher today. Like those people got plenty of opportunities to exit the market during a three month, like just slide into an abyss down into 30 Ks. Right. They got plenty of opportunities to exit. If they were scared about their investment, they left the market. And we saw high loss realization by newer holders of Bitcoin, which we call the short-term holders. Lots of loss realization from that group, very little spending out of the people who've had their coins for six months or more. And so I think that if we, if we see additional downside, just to kind of strengthen your point about it being a, a value-add opportunity, I think absolutely. We've seen the capitulation out of Bitcoin holders, right? That happened months ago. And I, I think that unless we were to see some scary low price that people haven't seen in two years, most of the people who want to sell just for selling's sake have done so. So my question is, who is remaining to spend here at, with, with existing information, right? Barring some black swan. So any prices any lower than this are absolutely, in my view, Great value opportunities. Take the ride. Go ahead, man. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, maybe he don't know if take the ride heard you. Sorry. Yeah, uh, my question is for Doctor Jeff. Um, yesterday, I heard some interesting language in the in the wording that they released. They were talking about significantly lowering the balance sheet. Um, that's a little bit more aggressive than we've heard considering that uh, aspect of the Fed's policy. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm just telling you guys that tightening into a declining economy and defl and uh, disinflation is exactly the wrong move. So they're getting uh, exceedingly tough on inflation at exactly the wrong time. And I'm telling you that the market is not going to like it. Yeah, they're tightening into slowing growth expectations. That's That's not great. Ant, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you direct traffic for a few minutes? We've got hands up. Go ahead and get to them. I'm checking out the uh, the chat and answering some questions, et cetera. Sure. What's up, Wicked? Hey, um, so I just wanted to uh, just ask or touch on real quick. So the, the, the run-up um, last summer from July to November, right, that was by and large caused by hodlers, right? Like there was, what, was there anything else really that caused that, that short, you know, bull run per se, other than just pure hodling? Well, I'll jump in here. I, you know, again, I see everything from my macro uh, lenses. So take it with a grain of salt, but we had a great macro setup, basically all of 2021. I think, I truly believe the reason Bitcoin didn't go parabolic was uh, a, because of what happened in China, right? That was a real huge ding to the to the system. So the network absorbed it and and continued to function perfectly. But uh, it was a legitimate uh, like you know attack on Bitcoin, Bitcoin the network. So the price went down fifty percent, more than fifty percent, because the hash rate went down about fifty percent or more than fifty percent. And then it would and then it clawed its way back because Bitcoin is the ultimate anti fragile asset. It will always claw its way back. It can basically take any assault on it. It just makes it stronger in the long run. But what it did is it basically set the price back 
uh, by several months. It was making another run, I believe, towards this parabolic rip higher, and then the macro conditions changed. And so, like I said, it peaked at like November 10th. Then Bitcoin, be because it's the world's freest market, it started to sniff out that there was actual trouble under the economic hood coming, that 2022 wasn't, wasn't going to be good. Markets always look ahead one to three months or so. Uh, at least that's how I view things. Um, and so they saw this trouble coming. So that's why we peaked early. Um, and so, again, that's that's why I tend, tend to have this sort of bearish view. But I but I think that 2021 should have been a, a great year. And I don't like to make excuses for the Bitcoin price because, you know, it does what it wants. Um, but to me, that's the that's the only reason th those two things are the only reason why it didn't actually go parabolic to end the year. You know, that's interesting that you say that, Dr. Jeff. So you, you think it was about to go parabolic in the like the Q3 rally. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, I think it was starting to go parabolic. And then China came out with that just massive blindside move. Uh, you know, I mean, we knew that was coming, right? But nobody believed it would be that serious. And it was that serious. It forced all of the miners out and tons of those miners had to capitulate and sell down their Bitcoin stashes. And I think that's what you're talking about. What you saw on, on chain, right, is that these hodlers just suddenly had to sell a massive amount of Bitcoin and that had to be absorbed by the rest of the market. Um, that was a huge blow uh, from a price action standpoint. Um, and so, yeah, I think that set it way back. I think it was on its way to going parabolic before that happened. It's really interesting. And yeah, you, you, there is, it did, yeah, the, the, the rolling over of supply, it started like on the day of the Coinbase direct listing and then it accelerated when China banned mining. You know, like, you know, it was, it was on a downslope and then the gradient shifted. Uh, you know, you can see just the offloading, the panicked offloading of holders. Uh, and, but you know, the, from an, from a perspective of on chain, the market really was already beginning like a pullback phase in February of 2021, which is lo long before the actual top of the market. And I I wasn't studying on chain at that point. And I people sometimes people ask me, well, why didn't you say anything last year? Well, I started my Twitter account in the middle of May, so that's one reason. Uh, but the if you look at the if you look at the activity on chain, you look at like the the volumes, the amount of supply changing hands, the amount of transactions, the amount of active addresses, active entities, whatever. Pick a pick a metric for activity. All of those things hit their zenith in like January of 2021 after a really sharp incline, and everything started to pull back. If you look at RSI, which I don't even use. I know, Dr. Jeff, I know you use it sometimes. I see it on your charts. You look at RSI, it started setting lower highs from January. If you look at the distribution of holders, they all spent into that all-time high rip from 20K all the way up to 40. And then we had that first really quality pullback in January, early February of last year. That's the point I'm talking about. And the thing that I actually think my core thesis of what happened from there until like April, May was the grayscale arbitrage dried up right around the exact point that the retrace was coming in from that pullback. And then all of a sudden we found out that Tesla had Bitcoin on its balance sheet. That was like February 8th or something, February 9th. And that was the day of the Elon candle. And just before that candle, with the activity falling off, I actually think we were about to go into a deeper retrace and Elon screwed up the whole pattern. And it created this weird Bart Simpson top that eventually ran out of steam because there was no underlying demand because it was all the metrics I mentioned falling off. And I think that what happened with China was like the worst possible timing. 
And I, I know that's a different perspective from what you proposed, Dr. Jeff, but I think they both tell a similar story, which is that what happened with China had a major impact on whatever was going on with the market right there. And it kind of threw off like the normal cyclical patterns of things. All right. So we're going to continue to chat about price, et cetera, for a couple more minutes. And we've got Sam Callahan up here who just joined us. Good morning, Sam. After we uh, finish up with price, we'll do a couple more announcements and uh, jump in a little bit with Sam. I don't know who had their hand up first, either Shane or Sats. It was I'll Sat. just go real quick. Oh, okay, go ahead, Sats. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, thanks again, Dr. Jeff and TX for coming in this morning. Um, I was just thinking about when you guys were talking about the supply shock. And just to put in perspective, I think it was over a 30-day span, a net 92,000 uh, Bitcoin came off exchanges. And then also in macro, as we see the fundamentals, if we have a price dip, isn't that still just creating a greater uh, bullish divergence? Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, I think if, I, if I'm understanding what you're saying is that you're saying a bullish divergence between the, the OGs continuing to stack harder and put it away into cold storage and creating higher illiquid supply. And then but yet the price is going down. So so that has to remedy itself. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. But the, the trick is to, to figure out when when does this happen? So I think over the long run, that will absolutely play out, meaning that if you buy Bitcoin today, I think one, three, five, ten years from now, it will absolutely be higher. Obviously, I, you know, not an individual investment advice. I'm just, I'm just guessing. Um, but yes, the fundamentals are incredibly strong, and the hodlers are getting stronger and growing every day in number and in size. So yes, over the long run, that will definitely be reflected in price. But in the short run, anything can happen, right? And it tends to be driven more by macro uh, setups. By the way, one other point I wanted. Well, two, two other points. Sorry, sorry to be long-winded. Two other points. One was um, what TXMC was talking about. What he alluded to is the fact that futures are basically flat through mid-March. I would encourage you guys to go back and look at a chart from in, in uh, Q4 of 2018 of Bitcoin, how it went basically perfectly flat from mid-September to mid-November. And then over the next month, it literally dumped 50%. So just saying it's a possibility, brace yourselves. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's a possibility. Um, the second thing is in, a, in the very short term, I posted this earlier today. We're actually at a good technical point. from So for multiple technical reasons, the, the price of 42000 um, it's basically hitting a, an important FIB level, Fibonacci level. It's also hitting a important line of support, like just from a structural standpoint, TA standpoint, uh, and it's oversold using multiple indicators that I look at. If you're looking at RSI or CCI or uh, Bollinger Bands on the four-hour charts, we're actually oversold at these levels. Usually that means what we're due for from a probabilistic perspective is a short-term bounce. So usually at worst sideways, uh, at best we bounce higher. That's just technical. Again, this is just just me guessing. Please don't use this as individual trading or investment advice. Thank you. I just smashed bought. God, Doctor Bear, why are you such a hater on Bitcoin, man? I thought we were going to hundred k at the end of the month. Let's say too much smash buying. Right. Okay. I'm going to add one last comment. This is actually coming from Worth, who's out in the audience. Good morning, brother. Hope you're doing okay. He's uh, reporting in that he's got the coof. So that's the reason he's not up here on this stage engaging in this conversation. But I wanted to add his comment here. He goes, regarding Bitcoin, I am buying and don't care about the short term. Bitcoin is low time preference. 
I've seen many pro money managers go broke over the last three decades, miscalculating the macroeconomic environment. Hell, even Jeff Vinnick missed it when he was managing the Magellan Fund, when he started moving into bonds, which led to his departure to the to add the funds manager. What people are not calculating is, is that one announcement could cause Bitcoin to go vertical. By the way, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I assume Worth is kind of uh, offhandedly talking about me. So if if he's right and I do get wrecked from this, are there any job openings at Swan maybe or Bitcoin Magazine? <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoinerjobs.com, brother. We post everything there. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. A couple quick announcements. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Pacific. Roll for about two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin. This is also a podcast. It's up on Spotify and Apple. Throw Swan Bitcoin a follow if you want to be notified when it drops. We have a Telegram group going. The link is in the nest. Go ahead and check it out if you want to chat with people hanging out here live, uh, your fellow plebs. You can ask questions in there for us to answer on the show. Already mentioned Bitcoinerjobs.com. However, Bitcoin 2022 conference coming up in April. In Miami, we're going to take over. It's going to be awesome. Prices increase on Friday, February 8th, so don't wait. Dr. Jordan Peterson is going to be there as a speaker. If uh, you want a discount, you can use promo code SWAN for that. Also, uh, if you're a SWAN private client, DM your SWAN private rep. We're going to be throwing a SWAN private event. We're going to have some of the top thought leaders in Bitcoin there in an intimate environment. You can hang out, get to know them personally, and ask them, Lots of pointy stick questions is what I call them. Worth, we all hope you get better soon, brother. Everybody send their positive. Everybody send their positive vibes his, his way. Uh, there goes Doctor Jeff with his purple hearts, <laughs> lavender hearts. Actually, they're not even quite purple. They're even more manly when they're lavender. I've never Sam. felt. I've never felt more feminine than I do right now. Hey, can I make a comment real quick, Alex? Go ahead, brother. I just saw something that I, I'm not even going to say who it is because I don't want to get super political, but I, I just saw a post that said, "Web," and this is a politician, Web3 Technologies represents the biggest anti-poverty opportunity of our time. It's just crazy, uh, you know, all, all these people that keep pushing this narrative. We know better. It's not, but it's not, it, well, here's the thing. If you back up, if you back up, zoom out, zoom out. Like if your intention is to completely remove the wealth from the middle class, turn everybody into peasants so your global surveillance panopticon works, then uh, that's exactly what somebody might say. Not that I think that's happening or anything. All right. Speaking of which, we have Sam Callahan here, and Sam has done deep dive stuff on World Bank, the Bank of International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund. Now, here's the interesting thing about all of these entities. There's, they are what is called an extra sovereign entity. What does that mean? They do not answer to anyone. They're not officially within the jurisdiction of any country. They're actually like their own little countries onto themselves, kind of like the Vatican. They're like above sovereign law. Sam, greetings. Good morning. Tell us some things about these entities and what you've discovered. <laughs> yeah, good morning. Um, happy to be here. Got my coffee and 
it's a little early to be ranting about the IMF and World Bank, but you know, uh, this is Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, man. So I've just I've dug into this these organizations and central banking actually before I got into Bitcoin. So I was really interested in them. I'd say from like 2012 to 2015 is when I was like digging into them. And honestly, back then, it left kind of a bitter taste in my mouth because. I didn't really see a solution. I just learned about all these organizations and how they were unaccountable and they were actually arguably causing more harm than good, especially on poorer nations around the globe. And I kind of left it because I just, it just kind of made me feel disgusting and I, I didn't really see a solution. But when I, when I found Bitcoin, it immediately clicked to me that this could be their Achilles heel that kind of takes some power away for them makes these organizations smaller, less influential, um, because they basically had a monopoly on distressed sovereign debt for, you know, the last almost 80 years. And now there's competition. Now there's a, a open monetary network um, that will force them to be better. And if they don't be better, then they're going to die <laughs> because Bitcoin exists now. And it's about time that they got some competition because, you know, in my opinion, they've been incompetent or they perhaps have some other ulterior motives um, that aren't really said in their mission statement. Um, so that's kind of a little summary. But, yeah. Well, let's break it down a little bit further. Like. Who is the World Bank? Who is the IMF? Who is the BIS? Why do they exist? Or I should say, why do they claim they exist? <laughs> Well, they were they were created like long ago um, under international treaty. You know, the biz was created um, to basically handle war reparations after World War One for Germany. And they've kind of just persisted since then, since 1930. And then the World Bank and IMF were created in 1944 uh, in Bretton Woods when the, the dollar reserve system was created. So is the World Bank and the IMF. Um, basically, the three have different purposes nowadays. Uh, the biz is kind of like a, a bank for central banks, and they're basically an international clearinghouse where they uh, help move large capital movements, and they also collect a lot of data and do a lot of research. Um, so they kind of track the plumbing of the international financial system. And so back in March 2020, when the Fed came out and did all these liquidity operations and these dollar swap lines, you know, it was the biz's job to surveil that. And to understand where all these flows are were going, and which is why their financial surveillance tools increased from 13 to 71, I believe, in the last two years, because they just had to understand where all these funds were going now that the Fed was kind of laying down all these new pipes. Um, so that's kind of the biz. Uh, the World Bank was created in 1944, and they're an international development developmental agency. So they um, they were created to help rebuild post-war Europe after World War II. And so their job was always kind of very altruistic in terms of um, helping uh, nations kind of rebuild after natural disasters or financial crises. Um, they are, uh, their mission is to reduce poverty. Um, and so that's kind of the World Bank. And then the IMF was created in, in Bretton Woods to kind of maintain the balance of payments. So they, they basically made sure that there wasn't any kind of disequilibrium that was occurring between currencies. So in that system, there was a peg to gold, which was fixed, the U.S. dollar. 
at $35 to one ounce. And that there's adjustable rates with all the other currencies. That's how the Bretton Woods system worked. And they were worried that uh, nations would do competitive devaluations of their currencies. Um, and so what they did was they had the IMF be like a supervisor and make sure that all the exchange rates were, were not being kind of manipulated by, by their trading partners. And so they kind of just kind of controlled all the exchange rates above it. And that's how, why they were originally created. And now the IMF, after 1971, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, it really made the IMF obsolete. Their original purpose was destroyed. And so what the IMF morphed into was just another World Bank. So now that we have like two international developmental agencies that basically do the same thing, which is basically give out loans to uh, developing nations uh, to, quote unquote, help them um, you know, improve and create economic growth and reduce poverty and all that. So that's kind of my best summary of the three. So the Bank of International Settlements tends to make rules for banks all around the world. And interestingly enough, all the banks around the world adopt those rules. So for example, uh, in the last couple of years, they've declared gold as a tier one asset, essentially equivalent to cash. Um, and basically, they provide guidance in a really interesting way that happens to be adopted globally, much like uh, I think it's the FATF or something like that. There's some organization that is an unelected um, – I don't even know where these guys came from, but essentially all financial regulators around the world typically adopted their guidance later. Um, and a lot of that has to do with AML, KYC and supposedly protecting us all from terrorists and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you, as you mentioned, it's interesting to me that the IMF and the World Bank, even though their original purposes no longer exist, they've somehow kind of figured out a way to maintain their parasitic lifestyle, so to speak, <laughs> on the entire world. Yeah, well, I would say, um, I would say the World Bank still has their original purpose from from nineteen forty four. Uh, whether they're effective or not at it, that's a whole other argument, but. Uh, the IMF has definitely changed. The biz has definitely changed, uh, kind of shape-shifted, and they're really good at persisting and holding on to power. So it's something to think about uh, with Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, man, so uh, the biz, that's kind of what my problem with them is, is they're unelected. They, they act above uh, uh, sovereign nations and their governments who are elected. You know, if you think about America being a republic, we elect uh, representatives. Representatives, and we are sovereign individuals to represent us as a sovereign nation uh, to set policy. And when you have the biz acting in a stratosphere above that whole system, it really infringes upon the sovereignty of, you know, arguably billions of people around the world. Um, and so I don't think it's necessarily right. And if you look at history, you know, what the biz con like thinks about in their closed door meetings eventually becomes the reality of the world. I mean, the euro is the prime example, you know, it took them about two decades of planning and designing for the euro to finally be implemented. And that was all the business idea. Now they're talking about CBDCs. Um, like you said, they, they are given, they don't have any authority, but people listen to them. You brought up the gold being a tier one asset. Another example is the Basel rules, which require certain reserve requirements for banks and, uh, you know, that was set by the biz, too, but they don't have any authority uh, 
to actually enforce that, but people like listen to them. And it's because the biz has all the data and the biz was meant to be a kind of a watchtower, like a picture, a, a Siron or Siron, whatever from Lord of the Rings, like the big tower, they actually have a tower. Their headquarters is called the tower of Basil. So I just, I think of them as the eye in the sky who are tracking everything. And so people listen to them, especially when it comes to these like uh, reserve requirements and stuff, because they have the best vantage point, if you will, and they have the most data. Um, so that it, it's an interesting thing. And, and, I, and I don't know why they've kind of snuck into this power role where everyone kind of listens to them and adopts their policies. But that is the reality um, of the world we live in today. You know, the thing that chafes at me the most is, is that they're basically unelected. You know, it's it's much like the uh, the way the European, um, the EC kind of runs things over there. These are unelected people and they answer to no one. And that's such a very dark precedent potentially for mankind. So it's pretty interesting how, um, at least in the economic space, which ultimately I think is what empowers political uh, force, at least in the economic space, Bitcoin is changing everything. And there's this saying, you know, we're over the target, which indicates, you know, <laughs> to me, anytime you see Christine Lagarde tweeting out that Bitcoin is bad, or you see Hillary tweeting out that Bitcoin is bad, and any one of these major sort of international extra sovereign organizations freaking out about Bitcoin or this recent announcement from the United States that they're doing an investigation into El Salvador's <laughs> their, their stability because they're using Bitcoin. And Naib Bukele comes out and he's like, yeah, well, we're going to raise $4 billion in Bitcoin bonds. What are you going to do? <laughs> what do you think, Sam? No, yeah, I think that's why I'm really excited about that because it's kind of like what I said earlier where there's competition now in their market. And uh, they've had a monopoly for a long time that they were able to abuse. And I would say their quote unquote clients have suffered because of the lack of competition. And now there's an option and there's an alternative that they can use. And Bikele's, um right there at the tip of the spear and he's the first one to do it. But they're really worried about a domino effect happening and other nations realizing because honestly, these other nations, I think they're looking at Bitcoin and they're like, I don't even care. I just do not want to work with the IMF and World Bank anymore. They have harmed us for way too long, and I will take any other alternative. And so this Bitcoin thing, let's try it out, because what we've been working with with the IMF and World Bank is not working for us. And so it's, it's, it's very, very interesting to see how this develops. And I think just I said, I think I said this in the Preston podcast, but just like how Facebook's DM really lit the fire under the CBDC research of central banks. Um, this Bitcoin bond seems to have really woken up these uh, transnational, international organizations um, that that Bitcoin's here, and it's not just the speculative asset, but it's gonna, you know, probably disrupt their business of uh, you know predatory loans <laughs> to developing nations. So, yeah, man, it's really interesting. Yeah, that's absolutely true, right? So essentially, if I'm not mistaken, World Bank does basically a similar thing to the IMF where they where they will offer a loan to a small country, but they'll do it in a way where there's lots of terms attached. They can only use it for certain things. Um, and then if they fail in any terms, then there's very extractive 
um, repercussions. So we, you know, I've talked to Lord Fusatua, who's was a member of parliament over there in, in Tonga, and he, he was going in depth on this about how they basically turn small countries into resource extraction sites. He called his own country basically an aquarium for the Western nations where they're using it like a gigantic sort of aquatic resource extraction area. And, and like, this is happening to lots of small countries. So I would suspect that if these bonds get fully subscribed, that's a completely new financial model. And in geopolitical terms, that could be like completely turning over the apple cart. Cause at that point it's like, well, any country can raise money in Bitcoin bonds. These people really have no purpose anymore. And that's got to be terrifying to them. Yeah. And you brought up, um, you know, the conditionalities of their loans. Yeah. This is something that developed over time when the IMF and World Bank were initially created in 1944. You have to think about the economic thought that was popular at the time, which was just like traditional uh, you know, Keynesianism of, uh, you know, FDR and the New Deal and how government has to play a role in like smoothing economic activity and so you had this like very uh interventionism of these large organizations but when Bretton Woods failed it kind of shifted to a, a neo-libertarianism of the free market and like Reagan Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher really pushed this like free market ideas and so it really changed how the IMF and World Bank um kind of applied their their work because in the, in the past, they would basically be like project-based. So the World Bank would be like, hey, we're going to build this dam here. We're going to build a highway here, and it's going to increase uh, GDP this much. And that's how they kind of went about their business. But in the late 70s, they realized that no matter how good the project was, if it was in a bad policy environment, it would fail. And so they shifted their focus to policy and actually affecting the policy of these uh, developing nations and infringing on their sovereignty. And so they would say, hey, we're going to give you this loan, but we need you to do this to your job sector. We need you to open up your markets here. We need you to do all these things or else we're not going to give you your loans. And so that's how they kind of started to infringe upon it with these conditions and what they call structural adjustment programs. It really threatens the sovereignty of national economies because you have a foreign organization dictating the recipient country's economic policies. And that should be a sovereign right. And, and it, since the early 80s, it has only become more and more where you have this outside organization dictating the policies. And so, um, you know, Lord, I forgot his name, from Tonga is saying the exact same thing that the financial minister of El Salvador is saying, that every single uh, nation that has dealt with the IMF and World Bank has been saying for decades is that they don't have a sovereign right. And if you read between the lines of what's happening in El Salvador, that is what this is all about. It's like when Bukele was tweeting the other day, it was like, you don't have authority to tell us what to do. Like you're not in our backyard or front yard. We are a sovereign nation. And, and that the IMF and World Bank do not like that because they like having control and they like telling the, that these countries what to do so that uh, they get repaid on their loans because they think that's their one biggest, uh, goal is to just get repaid for their loans because they really are they act like a bank and so if they don't apply their policies they withhold the funds from these nations and that's why it's almost like a form of blackmail 
at the nation state level. And so there's nothing these organizations can do, these governments can do, because they need these funds. And they have to adopt the policies that the IMF tells them what to do, or else they don't receive their funds. When they adopt the policies the IMF and World Bank do, a lot of the time it causes a lot of uproar and riots and problems because it's kind of based off these principles that really need to be reevaluated. And, and kind of went on a rant there, but. That's all right, man. I like your rants. Something that uh, Lord Fusatua said, um, and this guy, in my opinion, he's pretty brilliant. He was saying that as long as they will give them money, like moving forward, they're probably going to use it for Bitcoin-based infrastructure. <laughs> and whether they whether they actually pay those back or not, we'll see. You know, that's the advantage actually of of debt in fiat currencies that are collapsing because the actual purchasing power of the fiat currency denominated in the numbers of the loan is way, way, way lower in a collapsing currency, right? So game theory was if you could take out a huge loan, build a ton of Bitcoin infrastructure with it, pay off the loan with hugely cheapened dollars or euros or whatever it's in, you're probably pretty golden. Yeah, I mean, these, these loans aren't a problem if they're used productively. Uh, you know, building infrastructure like they're meant to, a lot of the times they're not used productively. And then the nation's just left with a huge debt burden and they're not better off. And so, yeah, if they, they get the loans and they, they, it's the same thing with Bukele and the Bitcoin bonds. Like there's some, there's an execution that needs to happen here. Like half of the Bitcoin bond is meant to build the Bitcoin city and invest in mining operations. But they have to execute on that. Like they have to make sure that the operations are well engineered and, and actually, you know, return a profit. Um, and they have to build a, you know, good infrastructure in the city. Um, if they don't, then it, it's just like another bad loan. But then you also have the half of the Bitcoin bond, which is made up of Bitcoin, which obviously changes the game. But um, these these IMF and World Bank loads. A lot of the time, there's a lot of corruption involved with them at the political level, embezzlement. Um, and then there's a lot of just misallocation of funds, uh, which just makes these countries in worse off positions in the long term. I'm so lamenting the death of the 100% emoji. I just want to hit it and fist bump constantly. Um, in terms of the IMF loans, you know, when it came to Bukele, I can remember the timeline where the IMF was like, yeah, we're going to try and hold this billion plus dollar infrastructure loan over your head. And Bukele basically said, screw off. I'm going to do a Bitcoin loan instead or a Bitcoin bond instead, which I think that's when Lagarde started tweeting out that Bitcoin was dangerous to the stability of the world economy. Uh, Shane. Hey, I'm curious. I was going to ask Sam if he's um, read or listened to the uh, book, The uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It talks a lot about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's a great starter book, actually, for this topic. Uh, it's pretty accessible, and it's a firsthand account of kind of what occurs here. In that book, um, John Perkins works for um, basically one of the firms. So there's like a whole another uh, kind of part of these IMF and World Bank loans where you know, they say, hey, we need you to build, um, you know, elect like an electrical grid or something, you know, energy infrastructure, utility infrastructure, and then or else we're not going to give you these loans. So it's like part of the conditions. 
and then the the developing nation says, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do that. And then we're going to hire some contractors on the, on our Island or whatever. But then it's like, Oh no, 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 we're going to, we have us firms that are going to do all this contracting work. <laughs> and so they make them uh, work for these us firms who hire economists who basically say, Oh yeah, we're going to, this is this uh, utility grid is going to bring back X amount of GDP. And so they justify a huge loan to build out these, infrastructure that they give the uh, project to U.S. firms so they make a bunch of money off it and then they usually overestimate the amount of GDP that comes from them again further uh, creating a debt burden for these countries and so John Perkins in that book worked for one of those U.S. firms as an economist so he kind of over exaggerated the effectiveness of these programs and the idea was that there was an ulterior motive here was not only to bring business to U.S. corporations and U.S. firms, but also to push U.S. interests by basically enslaving these developing nations in huge debt burdens and then using that debt burdens and the dependence on the foreign organizations to get things they want. And it could have been anything like, hey, we want to build a military base in your country, or hey, we want you to vote a certain way on this U.N. vote. Or um, we want to use your natural resources. We want access to the oil that you have or else we're not going to release these funds for you. And so that's kind of a summary of that book. And I think it's a great place to start. All right. We've got about 15 minutes left in the show. There's one other topic that I want to jump into. We'll open it up for questions. If you guys have questions, you can start signing them. Join the Cafe Bitcoin Spaces chat on Telegram. It's pinned up in the nest if you want to ask questions. We're going to be doing it that way instead of through Twitter DMs here moving forward. You can put your question in there. Jacob's keeping an eye on that, and um, we'll address those. So one thing I wanted to talk about real quick is mechanisms of control, transmission mechanisms, how all this kind of stuff is enforced. And essentially, it's all done through banking transmission mechanisms, so international transfers of funds, whether that be the wire system, I'm sorry, the SWIFT wire system, or there's another one in Europe. I can't think of the name of it right now. Recently came up. But it's it's essentially through the control of the transmission of funds, mainly through the banks. So there's a book that I, I recommend everybody read. It's called Treasury's War. It's written by a guy by the name of Juan C. Zarate, Z-A-R-A-T-E. And this guy worked for Treasury, and he came up with the strategy of using the U.S. dollar, weaponizing the U.S. dollar, and using sort of extra jurisdictional regulatory practices to make every bank in the world comply with AML, KYC, et cetera. And essentially the way it works is all U.S. dollar transfers around the world. U.S. dollars, the world's reserve currency still is, right? Used to be like 85% of world trade was conducted in U.S. dollars. Now it's down to around 65%. Many countries are, are creating bilateral trade agreements where they're not using U.S. dollars at all. So the number keeps dropping, which kind of is a has been a major trend for many years now. But in order to do an international wire transfer, those transfers all have to go through the United States, mostly their intermediary banks in New York City. So this is where the control mechanism is. It's all, you know, here's the stick part of it. And that is the U.S. Can, regulators can basically say to anybody, any bank, any financial institution around the world, either you play ball 
or we're going to freeze your ability to transfer U.S. dollars through New York is really what it comes down to. This is super important to understand. This is the gatekeeper problem. This is the same problem that all forms of money have had throughout the history of mankind. When you have gatekeepers involved, people who can control whether something actually gets transferred or not, you are at their mercy. And there's nothing you can do about it. Enter Bitcoin changes everything. Go ahead, Sam. No, I just think like AML and KYC, it's it's kind of frustrating. There, there's a there's a man on Twitter, he recently joined Twitter. When I was doing a lot of research into FATF and AML KYC uh, laws and things like that, um, there's a guy named Dr. Ron Paul, a different, awesome Ron Paul, actually, uh, just spelled a little differently. But I kept coming across his name because he had actually done a, his PhD thesis on the ineffectiveness of these policies. And he is obviously not very popular in the banking community, uh, but he came on Twitter and I was like, this is my guy because um, he basically is the man who, you know, when you say the numbers that uh, those policies have only been effective on like 0.02% of all illicit activity, like that's all his work. And I, I would suggest everyone go follow him. But it's really important because if you look at all, everything that they justify, every act of overreach and everything in like the CBD papers from the Bank of International Settlements, the reason why they don't want privacy and they justify not having privacy in their designs is because of stopping money laundering. But their policies up to this date have been completely ineffective at doing that. But that is how they justify everything, that they are stopping illicit activity, that they are doing all these things. But in reality, FATF and their policies, I think Ron Paul says something along the lines of it's uh, an infinite cost and zero effectiveness. That's kind of where it's trended to over the years. It, it costs banks and, and the, uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars in fines that com to comply with these AML and KYC policies. And there's no effectiveness of the policies. And, and they pass on those costs to consumers. So consumers eventually eat those costs. And, and why, why do they keep doing that? Like why, if it's not effective, why do they keep uh, finding these banks and and then when these uh, developing countries don't comply when it's a smaller bank, they really get hurt by these fines. And then if they don't comply with these ineffective policies, the FATF puts them on gray lists and blacklists like you talked about. So they weaponize the dollar, cut them off from the dollar system if they don't comply with these ineffective AML KYC policies. Um, so it's a way that they, they maintain control and they gatekeep. And it's just wild to me because it's just it, they don't even work like they literally do not work and it's how they justify every act of overreach to this day absolutely and if you look at the history of all this right where did where did anti-money laundering come from that was designed in to to fight the war on drugs the quote war on drugs right what is the anti-terrorist funding stuff supposed to fight it's, it's the war on terror. You, you know what's really interesting to me from a military perspective is when you have something like a war on drugs or a war on terror or a war on poverty, poverty or a war on anything, it sounds really good. And if you're a politician talking about it, it gets people, yeah, let's do that. But if you notice, there are zero victory conditions. An army that goes into warfare has a specific objective. 
it's a it's a focused precise application of kinetic force to achieve specific objectives and when you have wars on terror and wars on drugs and wars on poverty and wars on things that you can have no victory conditions here's the trick it allows politicians to create laws under the auspices of protecting you from things that will never end and this is what they've figured out they have figured out that if they can scare the shit out of you they can get you to agree to all kinds of stuff like the whole thing about you know don't fund terrorism we're doing this for your protection like this is my personal opinion i never asked for their fucking protection i know lots of americans who don't have never asked for their fucking protection i don't give a fuck about that i would much rather have freedom and no surveillance what's well, like what we're seeing with the the canada trucker situation what's concerning i think i heard lola say this last night which it's just concerning how easily they can call somebody a terrorist nowadays. You know, these truckers just kind of went in there. There's kind of pretty peaceful from my understanding. And now they're, they're terrorists in like two weeks. And so now they justify the blacklisting of Bitcoin addresses and all the, all the, what we just talked about with the surveillance and the AMLKYC and stopping terrorist financing. And if these truckers can be labeled terrorists after two weeks of just, you know, basically standing there with bounty ounces just hanging out. Um, you know, we have to think about how that power can be turned against every single person in the world that uh, is a dissident that, that goes against the government narrative because they will wield this power on, on everybody. And it's just crazy to me because once again, they have failed tremendously at stopping illicit activity and money laundering for the better part of three decades, but they justify everything uh, based off them. Yeah. It's also another example for the world right out front and center. What they will do with CBDCs have given that ability, given that power. So for those of you who are getting what we're saying here, get on the mission, get on the mission. Bitcoin's the only way. If we don't do this thing, Take it serious. Don't be apathetic. This is serious, serious stuff. It's time to stand the hell up. It's time to man the hell up. Cowboy up. Because we don't have a lot of time left, I think. Go ahead, CK. Well, the one thing that has just become like so, so obvious to me is that, you know, by the time you need to have your own node, hold your own keys, have Bitcoin, by the time you need it, it's too late right? You need to have this stuff all set beforehand. Uh, so it, it takes a little bit of like understanding of where we are in the world. And most people aren't, you know, they're still, they still have their blenders on, which is unbelievable, but they do. And, you know, things like Canada are waking people up, but still like the vast majority have their blinders on even in Canada. True. Yeah, true. Get, get your preferred uh, signing device now, right? <laughs> Don't wait. Imagine when it gets crazy and everybody wants them, what the supply chain, you know, implications of that are going to be. All right. We should. So, go ahead, Sam. Sorry. No, I just, you know, I think this whole Canada trucker thing really should wake us up as a community. Um, you know, we do need to like build easier privacy tools. And I know we always talk about self-custody, but how can we make that easier for newcomers? 
um, really get them to understand these things. And I, I do believe that overreach from governments like this that we're seeing in Canada will create an opposite reaction in the Bitcoin community to build better privacy tools, better on-ramps, uh, better privacy-focused wallets. Um, I think it should kind of wake us up that, you know, are we ready for what's coming? And it's okay to kind of question this, but I think I think we need to wake up a little bit and keep building, just get our heads down. All right. I know we were going to do questions. We're almost out of time. So if anybody on the panel has questions, go ahead and ask them. If you have questions and you want to send it in DMs, get in the Cafe Bitcoin Spaces Telegram group. Link is in the nest. And then we will move to closing comments and wrap. I'm going to jump. Y'all keep stacking. Uh, if you are in California, Northern California, go to Bitcoin Day Sacramento. Uh, this weekend, it's going to be this Saturday. Uh, I will be speaking as well as many other fantastic Bitcoiners. It is a Bitcoin only hardcore maximalist event. Uh, so really great one. So check that out. Bitcoinday.io. But uh, thanks for having me all. Peace. See you, CK. By the way, everybody in the audience, listen. When this show is over, everybody send a tweet to Twitter Spaces and ask them nicely to give us our fist bumps and our 100 percenters back. There's so many times I want a fist bump, but I can't. I'm like, God damn it. Closing comments. TXMC, any thoughts? Sure. This has been an amazing talk. Sam, you gave me a lot of things to think about. I uh, have a flight this afternoon back to the homeland, and I'm going to be listening to your talk with Preston. I'm very eager to hear that. So that's cool, man. Thanks for bringing it. Appreciate you guys having me up here today. Alex, Jacob Pope out there, helping put these things together, DMing me to come on. I really appreciate all you guys. This is an amazing production, and it's good for the Bitcoin space. Um, after this talk, uh, I'm going to go do some more price chat with my buddy Alby and LogScale. You guys are welcome to come hang out with us for a little bit. Usually Dr. Jeff comes by. Matt, I see you out in the audience. Maybe you'll come by. Um, so we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep the train rolling for a little bit longer, but, uh, yeah, thanks for having me up and, uh, keep stacking. You bet, brother. Thanks for coming. I would so fist bump you if I could. Damn it. Ah, me too. Ant? Nah, I just share, uh, you know, your feelings about these emojis. It's awful what's happened to us. I've learned that it's, uh, I think I'm right that it's uh, the Android first. So uh, I don't think it's happening to iPhone. I might be wrong, but it's interesting that, you know, they finally give us Android users something first, but it blows. So, <laughs> but social credit face. system, bro. Yeah. Social credit system. They're trying to make us <laughs> the Android users lower citizens. <laughs> great space today though thanks for sure. having me. you bet brother shane hey just uh come over to the telegram group and let's have some more conversations there but it's been a great great uh show today Corey, good morning do you have any thoughts and then we'll finish with sam yeah great show i got to listen to about an hour of it earlier i just popped in to say hi but uh yeah man I feel like the hundred and the fist bump actually occupy the same space. They do the same thing. And I just need like a, a subtle thumbs up. Like, why can't I just like mildly agree with the point sometimes? Why do I have to be like so over enthusiastic all the time? I'm going to clap because that's basically all I can do now. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Sam Callahan, take us home. Uh, yeah, man, this was fun. Uh, thanks for having me up here. Um, I would just say, like, you know, we're discussing, like, the old system here and the problems, and it can get kind of heavy. And just know that, like, Bitcoin fixes this, you know, let's leave it on an optimistic note. We have Bitcoin now. Um, and these are kind of like troubling organizations and troubling policies and definitely interesting times. But, you know, we do have an open monetary network that I believe is, is hopeful and optimistic. So I guess I'll just leave with Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah, I'm right. Get on the mission. Get everybody on the mission. Send people to the Bitcoin canon. Let them learn about Bitcoin. Be their personal guide. Help them onto the arc. Privacy tools by Odell. Huge rabbit hole on Bitcoin Canon. Let's get after it, people. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day, Monday through Friday. Start at 7 a.m. Pacific. Roll for two hours-ish. Talk about all things Bitcoin. This is the space to get your morning Bitcoin news. It's becoming the space where the top minds of Bitcoin come hang out and talk in the mornings. We have people randomly dropping in, like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Svetsky, et cetera, et cetera. This is also a podcast. It's up on Spotify. It's up on Apple. Throw a follow to Swan Bitcoin to be notified when those drop. Let's all go to Bitcoin 2022. That is going to be an amazing time. Price increase on Friday. Get your tickets, promo code SWAN for 10% off. You want a job in Bitcoin? Bitcoinerjobs.com. Join the Telegram group if you want to talk to everybody. Tomorrow's show, we're going to do a Bitcoin jam session with the boys. Thanks to everybody for being here. Thanks to the co-hosts, Bitcoin Magazine, SWAN Bitcoin. Thanks to my crew, Ant and Shane. Thank you to the speakers, TXMC. Dr. Jeff, Sam Callahan. Everybody should throw this guy, Sam Callahan, a follow. This dude is criminally underfollowed. Thanks to my producer, Jacob Pope. I work with Swan Bitcoin, managing director with Swan Private. If you want to know about Swan Private, DM me. Happy to help you personally. And then finally, get on the mission, people. Get on the mission. Love all of you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day. Crush it.